Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Well, pop quiz, hotshot. Two podcast hosts have taken over the airwaves to talk about three movies where public transit goes awry. What do you do? Noah Ballard, what do you do? I think you you can't forget about the human factor, Chance. That's <laughs> Certainly not. That's the moral of all these stories. Well, welcome to the podcast, Be Real, where we genre hop, reviewing and reappraising movie trios. And this week... As I said, what, an episode that Noah has uh, wisely called a hell of a commute. Yeah, and, and a podcast genre I've dreamed about, only dreamed for, for years now. We're pretty at home with uh, the taking of Pelham 123, Speed, and Sully. But buddy, we're going to start with uh, a, a public transit nightmare in your home city, but about, uh, what, 45 years ago or something like and that. And what a time it was. Yes, um... The Taking of Pelham 123, 1974, uh, directed by Joseph Sargent, written by Peter Stone, based on the novel by John Goaty, I think? Yeah. Who, interestingly enough, is a Curtis Brown client. Is that true? Yeah. Why is he not on the show right now, Noah? I think he's been dead for quite some time. (laughs) (laughs) Not to put too fine a point on it. (laughs) Well, when you said it the way you said it, you could see where I would believe he was alive. I mean, we also, like, managed the estates of... Right. They didn't... The state of New York didn't execute him, did they? They don't have execution in the state, Chance. Pity. Pity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. The Taking of Pelham 123. This is a movie that I've only seen one other time. With me. With you and your father. Um, It was certainly not the first time you and your father had seen it. Um, Certainly so this, not. This is a Ballard classic, I gather. Well, it's just such a, it has just the trappings of a, like a Ballard movie, right? Where it has like New York from a, like a bygone era. And here's like a couple of blue collar people trying to figure out like something as simple as, uh, what do you do when someone hijacks a, a subway? It's a hostile takeover movie at its best. Yeah, absolutely. And That's it really got- is, it's sort of like a, it's basically speed crossed with taxi driver. <laughs> yeah. So it's like this gritty, gross New York. And then you have a pretty basic setup of four guys hijack a New York City subway car. The downtown IRT, the Pelham 123, its, area, uh, its location of terminus plus its departure time. And uh, yeah, and you sort of see the grinding gears of New York City bureaucracy yeah. Like grind up against this sort of yeah, pretty quintessential like con artist bank heist sort of hijacked thing movie. Your attention please. Now then you'll all remain seated. Anybody who tries to rise is going to get shot. <laughs> I do hope I have made myself understood. 2:13 p.m. The city of New York is given 1 hour to come up with a million dollar ransom. You're out of your skull. No units stand by on a double. What's up, Z? A 
train's been hijacked. So it's Robert Shaw, who goes by the code name Mr. Blue, and uh, yeah. three other guys. One of Captain gonna... Quinn, it should be said, from Jaws. Sure. Or Doyle Lonigan from The Sting, or. Uh, Ooh. You know, a military officer from Guns of Navarone. He's an unbelievable actor. Oh, yeah. It's surprising to me how much I love him for, actually, how few movies I love him for. Right. You know what I mean? I think I think to myself, like, nobody knows Robert Shaw like you, Chance. But then it's just like, no, that's not true. I really only know, like, three movies. Three movies. I mean, that's a lot for an actor who's only been in, like, you know, a few big movies. And has, like, since passed. Yeah. But he's unbelievable in that role of, like, blank plus uh, and can scare the hell out of you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Mr. Blue... Mr. Green, Mr. Brown, and Mr. Gray take over the subway. They call, or take over the train. And they take over the train. Call the transit cops. Lieutenant Zach Garber, played by uh, Walter Matthau, mm-hmm. uh, takes the call while they demand a million dollars. They kick that up to the mayor. He gives them an hour until they start shooting people. And uh, it, yeah, it's a real, like, the thing about these movies is they're all sort of like, they have zero faith in bureaucracy. Right. And it's They're like very a, it's a rogue civil servant just taking the reins. Yeah. Well, this is like a, a movie that like deeply believes in like the deep state where it like this, you know, this situation is actually managed by people who are like not paid or qualified to like be doing these things. Right. But like they somehow do them just because of their like blue collar street smarts or sure. whatever. It happens to be. And in this movie, like, the New Yorker is, like, a big character. Like, everybody has some, like, wisecrack comment about everything, you know, and they are just, they wear their opinions on their sleeves, and they're just, like, living in this, I mean, it's the 70s in New York. It's, like, gross. There's, like, filth and garbage everywhere, and... Yeah, it's just amazing to to these little character pieces that it builds where you have like the mayor, as you mentioned, who like looks a lot like Ed Koch. Yeah. Um, and like his whole political thing and the fact that he has a flu the whole time is like kind of funny. Yeah, he's kind of like laid up like a king with a cold a little bit. Right. You know, I mean, he goes on to his uh, his chambermaid or whatever that's like i'm the goddamn mayor of new york like i don't i don't have to suffer like other people do yeah (laughs) well the coach from bad news bears tries to get the city out of it oh my Um, god yeah walter Matthau also this is a pretty incredible role for him yeah well it's so he's such an interesting screen presence because for even though you know it's coming for the first hour, like him and his physicality, it seems inconceivable that he will ever confront the bad guy himself. Right. And what I think is good about it is like he plays this sort of like pretty typical Walter Matthau, like good old boy type character, right. except when he like kicks it into drama, like when he's got that guy by like the sh- like the, the shirt collar. Yeah. And he just like throws him into the chair. And it's like that because of that arc. Like he mm-hmm. gets to sort of that. It almost is. It's interesting because it, what it reminds me of is Denzel Washington, who, of course, played the same role in the yeah. remake where he's like funny and he's joking with you. And then he hits that moment where he's just like, no. 
<laughs> yeah, but you always know that it's in Denzel, right? Like, at sure. some point, Denzel will chase down Travolta. But, like, the fact that Walter Matthau will do that is hard to believe as he's taking these initial right. calls. Right. Um, and that's the thing. This movie is interesting because I think it's more of, like, it's more of a dramedy than it is, like, a thriller. I mean, like, there are thrilling parts to it, but they're not, there's really no, there's no, like, big shootout or anything. There's no real big chase. I was surprised how small it is. Really, the only thing that's big about it is the scope of the response, like, that is, right. like, New York City. But in terms of the action, in terms of the plot, in terms of how many cars of the subway train it actually takes place on, it's small. It's one. Well, that's what I think is sort of funny about this movie and sort of funny about the genre we're talking about today is because all these movies sort of ask you that question, like, what would it be like if your typical morning commute, you know, got totally derailed yeah. into something horrendous? And this movie, like, it's kind of funny. Like, it's kind of funny what happens to these people. Yeah. Like, there's not that much death, and, like, the death is also, like, kind of funny. Yeah, I was struck by the difference, too, and this is definitely probably speaks to, you know, budget and time period as opposed to 90s L.A. with all the actors on that bus. Right. You know, and not, it's, it's very important to speed to kind of, like, hop around and be like, this was this guy's thing before it happened, and this and this and this. Right, right, right. And this movie, like, they're, the people on the train are just sort of, like, this sort of grody unit, and they're never, like... They are never like, hey, man, like, I'm, I'm going to, you know, call you to task for what you're doing. Like, the closest they get is that older African-American gentleman who's like, guys, you mind telling me, like, what you're doing? <laughs> He's so right. jaded. They all But, like, are. during the actual process of it, like, you sort of, these characters come out. Like, there's the woman. It's all basically, like, Hector Elizondo, like, fucking with people. Right. So he's, like, poking at the, like, the guy and the, the black guy in, like, the long leather coat. And then he, like, hits him with the gun when he's, like, giving him lip. Yes. And then he's, like, talking to that woman, too, who, like, actually may be a prostitute right. in the f- in the film because it's the 70s in Midtown Manhattan. Um, but and, and that's it's I like how it sort of builds the characters the way that the team of guys sort of gets to know them as opposed to like we'll get to in a second. Like, I think an important character group in these three movies is like the innocent bystanders. So you have like these people on the car in speed, you'll have the people on the bus and then in Sully, you'll have the people on the plane. And I think like not to spoil too much, but like this is definitely the funniest and like less like least ridiculous. The other thing I found sort of surprising about this movie, and it's no surprise, but it is no surprise that I love the Robert Shaw performance, is how like not very arch he is, especially compared to Dennis Hopper. Um, like he is, he doesn't have a sense of humor. There's this interesting line reading where he, you know, I think Garber says like, who is this? Like, who is this? And instead of being like, this is the guy who took your train. He's just like, it's the guy who has your train. That's what's so interesting about the Robert Shaw character is that he's not like an, a villain. He's just a guy trying to pull off something that he thinks he can. Yeah. And the way to do that is to like be as polite as possible. He says, please so much. Yeah. And then just like trick them into thinking that they're like doing one thing when they're actually doing something completely different. Right. 
So part of his plan is not to be like it's this is not revenge. Like he is not Dennis Hopper right. from Speed. Uh, nor are he is he the seagulls. No uh, <laughs> geese, but okay. Oh sorry, birds. Birds. Every character like has a need. Yeah. And it's not some like crazy lofty emotional need. It's like just to get through the day. And like you see that, like, even when they go into um, Jerry Stiller's office, who's, like, the head of the transit, what is he? In? He's got some bureaucratic MTA job. Yeah. And he's just, like, reading the paper. Like, he doesn't want to be bothered. Right. And then, like, he just has to do it, because, like, those are the parameters of his job. And it's very, like, laid out, like, what these people need. And for Garber, it's, like, it's, for nobody, it's personal. That's what I think is so interesting about it. That's true. That's true. It's just like it's watching just on a narrative level, like these cogs fitting so perfectly and like, well, now we need to bring in this person because like this thing is involved. And it's just like very, very well done without getting bogged down too much in, you know, people don't need an emotional reason to like come to work. Right. Yeah. And for the most of the time, they're mad at Robert Shaw. They're just mad because he's fucking up their shit. They make the trains run on time. And now the trains are not running on time right i mean i love the way it's shot it never really puts actors ahead of setting like the setting the actors are always shot through the setting whether it's like making sure the whole front of the train car is to get shaw in the little window or you know to give you a quick pan of the office sort of like even grodier all the president's men style and you just you can just smell the coffee breath and everyone's got a bald spot and the sound can we talk about the soundtrack those just like (laughs) like from the second the movie starts to like whoever the company is who presents the movie you are just hit over the face yeah with this like funky like dramatic sort of intro song that you know this movie is going to be like sweet it's like they're like belching horns almost right and it's very, like, 70s television. I mean, I was looking up the, the resume of Joseph Sargent, who directed this. Dude has made maybe 40 TV movies. Sure, And maybe, like, five theatrical release sure. movies. And so I was really just reminded in that sort of, like, small, low-budget, like, 26 episodes in a season way, like, he probably he takes on the personality of the workers. Like, we got to get this out. Even the last shot where... Walter Matthau sticks his head back in the door is very like Barney Miller esque, like way to end well, a TV I was just episode. Waiting, yeah, I was just waiting for like executive produced by like to come up like over a frozen Walter yeah. Matthau's face. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of you're you're right, and I think like if this property were have to have been developed today, it probably would have been like a limited series. Sure, but yeah, you're right. It does it does sort of lend itself to like two very good hours of like network drama and i mean the, the other side of that like w- we've we've complimented is like it's also like very simple and the plot twist is like not really a twist about like what their plan is because mm-hmm. the police officer like says it and then walter matthew is like well you have to push down the thing they can't get off and then they drive a few blocks and he's like well, i bet they got off and the cop's <laughs> like i just said that so it's you know it's very short its ambitions are very small um, right but there's no question I think that it's hitting it's hitting its bar. But I think there's also a reason that it's not like you know it's not heralded today. I mean I think it's considered a pretty good movie. I agree. 
But people don't talk about taking a pill on one, two, three. I try to talk about it as many times a day as I can. I know. Before we get to a rating, should we tell people how we rate movies? Let's let's do that. All movies and most of life can be described with our rating system. The four categories are good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to intellectual quality. The second is pure pleasure. Good good is easy, things that make you feel smart and happy, and that for both reasons you'd want to do again, like watching The Departed or Jaws or calling your pal to do a podcast with him. Good good movies make Noah say, Love that. Bad bad is easy too, things that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just wasted your time. Things like watching White Chicks or Wild Wild West, a conceptual double album of Christian pop punk. Bad bad movies make Chance say things like, I hated that. Good Bad, then, is something you recognize as worthwhile, but not something you enjoy. Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, most classical music, eating your goddamn vegetables. Good Bad is about being an adult, and these kinds of movies make Noah say... I mean, I'm glad I saw it once, but never again. Conversely, Bad Good is for your thoughtless inner child. It's Cheetos, it's late career Billy Joel, it's movies like Christmas Vacation... Honey? Kids? And Deep Blue Sea. Bad good movies make chance say, But it failed in such an entertaining way. Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear an opinion stated as fact. I think it's a pretty clear good good. Oh, deaf. This is one of the older movies that we've done. I think the, the, the early 70s are about the latest we've gone back so far. But I think it's good good. Yeah, it's like a, I think it's, it's both those. It's like The Departed. It's a pleasure to watch, but it's entertaining. Sure. And it's well made. It's it's you know what you know when I watched a chance hmm. the Saturday afternoon. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> My favorite time to watch a film. That is our our vacuum recommendation for our rating system to work. Should we move on to uh, a movie about three times three about three times the size? I would say. Taking yeah. a Pelham 123 is like an act of speed. Right. And let's keep in mind our conversation cannot dip below 50 miles an hour. <laughs> I'll try not to stutter. Um, All right. So speed. I feel like people have seen speed, right? I definitely have. <laughs> it's a pretty ubiquitous film. My girlfriend hadn't seen speed. That's all Sa- right. Sarah hasn't either. Most men have seen speed. Yeah. When I say most people, I mean most people exactly like me. <laughs> My mom was very enthusiastic about showing me Speed when I was like 11, so. But the setup to Speed is pretty simple. Well, Speed is Speed is a pretty interesting cold open here. Oh yeah. Where so we meet with so there's people in an elevator and the elevator like things snap and like the elevator falls down a little bit, but the people are okay. And then these police guys, these SWAT guys show up and it's Keanu Reeves and Jeff Daniels, mm-hmm. and you see them, like, keep the elevator from falling, and they realize there's, like, a bomber involved, and then, oh, no, he's in the building, and then, like, there's a little shootout, but nobody gets killed. Jeff Daniels takes one in the leg, and then there's, like, an explosion. So everyone thinks that the villain, played by Dennis Hopper, the easy rider himself, yep. um, and so there's an explosion, and they're like, oh, a bomb maker, an explosion, it must have killed him. And they just assume he's dead. Cut to like some weeks later, I guess, months later. Does it specify? I, this is the very confusing part to me. 
I thought it was the next day. Doesn't the guy at the coffee shop say, saw you on TV last night, Jack? That seems like a very complicated thing to plan and then execute. Like, within less than 24 hours of when you just got busted, like, in a pretty serious way, trying to perform something that you said took two years of your life to plan. Okay, actually, so the ceremony must have been much later. Well, that's the weird thing about the the beginning. I think that there is... There's definitely like a narrative issue up front because you have the ceremony where Jeff Daniels limps up and gets his thing and Keanu gets his thing. But then they like go to a bar and they're like, wow, today was tough, implying that they like had the medal ceremony like yeah. later that day. Yeah. And then Jeff Daniels is hung over from the night right. before. So and maybe Jeff it Daniels is all in the he- course of two days. It's. I feel like the the implication has to be that the awards ceremony is like an appropriate time later, like two two three weeks. Tough to say, because there's no way that Dennis Hopper plans this overnight. He's gonna need a nap after the last thing that he didn't do. Crazy, not stupid. Remember. Anyway. Um, so yeah, so this happens and then they're hung over from the next morning after celebrating their victory over Dennis Hopper and Keanu Reeves is just like getting his latte or whatever. And this bus just explodes like right in front of him. And then the phone rings and Keanu be like, must, is like, well, that's gotta be for me. Right. He picks up the phone. <laughs> it's Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper's like, you remember that thing we did with the elevator before? We're going to play that game again, but this time it's with a bus. Yep. And then the next two hours unfold uh, as Keanu Reeves attempts to first get on the bus and then assess what's going on on the bus and then, like, try to get people off the bus without Dennis Hopper figuring out that... So the three rules of the bus are... Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, it cannot go less than 50 miles an hour because it, like, triggers the bomb at 50, and if it goes below, it blows up. And then, or by 11 o'clock in the morning, and it's, like, 8 o'clock now, and what's the other one? Oh, if people try to get off the bus. Nobody can get off. There is a bomb on this bus. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. If it drops below 50, it blows up. What do you do? Everybody hold on! Great cast in this one. As I said, Jeff Daniels, Keanu Reeves, uh, Sandra Bullock. Joe Morton. Joe Morton. We should do a uh, retrospective about like, the, the better films of Joe Morton. I, that would be a lot of fun. That he steals, like, those last sort of ten minutes of Terminator 2. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, he was my first, like, mustachioed, cliche police commander in this movie. Like, whenever oh, I yeah. think of that character who other people might think of from, like, Lethal Weapon or something, I think of Joe Morton. Yeah, just Joe Morton's chewing a real... up this just stock dialogue. <laughs> oh, yeah. I need the goddamn money now! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joe Morton's an excellent actor. He really is. And that's the thing about these kinds of movies that I think, like, 
there's two ways to play them. There's the taking of Pelham one, two, three way where it's like kind of tongue in cheek. Yeah. You know, or there's just like, you know what, guys, we've got a decent premise. We've got some beautiful people in front of the camera. <laughs> Let's go full bore and we can make ourselves a boatload of money. Yes, indeed. We've got Jan DeBont. We have Paul Verhoeven, cinematographer, ready to do everything with practical effects. Let's yeah. do this. We've got the we've got the music. Uh, we, we've stolen uh, Hans Zimmer's best music, and we'll give the credit to someone else. Doesn't the beginning of this movie sound a lot like the theme from Pirates of the Caribbean? Um, I guess a little bit. That's like the theme. Yeah, of this but movie. that's like a that's like a fanfare. The thing that I love about this movie is that it's like a video game theme, and then it's just like a quick like double shot from like the Madden yeah. 96 soundtrack and then it's like back into orchestra right so my favorite thing about this ridiculous premise of a film is how often keanu initially has to explain the premise within the movie and how oh, yeah. much more ridiculous it gets every single time like he gets on the bus and he's like this is a bus. And people are like, what? He's like, it's going <laughs> to explode. And they're like, what? He's like, if this bus goes below 50, there's a bomb on this bus and it's going to explode. What's the name of that? The woman who's only been cast her entire career is the woman who ruins everything. Oh, yeah. She's played. I've, I'm going to steal your line about the dude from A Simple Plan, like the third guy in A Simple Plan. It's like, I don't know who that is, but he's def- she's definitely played a racist before. Oh, definitely. She's yeah. definitely like been on the wrong side of like a historical drama where there's like a picket line. <laughs> she was definitely like telling the Titans not to integrate or whatever. Actually, is she Gary Bertier's mom? No, that's somebody else. Oh, okay. But that kind of role. But she could have easily been Gary Bertier's mom. Right. right. I like that both. I don't you think really she was like upset it. when she didn't get that role. Yeah. I like that this movie. I don't really like it. It's actually a clear flaw that this movie, like when it's looking for its next thing to do, it just starts repeating stuff it did earlier. Like it's like, well, there was a really cowardly older woman on that elevator. Like, why don't we have basically the same person be on the bus? Or like, right. how are we going to do a third act of this movie on the train? Well, the whole second act was on a bus that couldn't stop. So maybe the what train, train? should stop. Yeah, that's funny. There, I mean, you know why Speed 2 Cruise Control was so bad? It's because like Speed was its own sequel. Right. Yeah. But it was also on a cruise ship, and that's stupid. I want to ask you a question. Because I want to talk about the specificity of Keanu Reeves. Okay. How would this movie be different, better, or worse if Tom Cruise played Jack Travern? Can I? I think it would be arguably the same movie. Really? I mean, I think like maybe. Oh, he could definitely it, do it. He could do it. And maybe it would be a little bit better, but this movie's already pretty good. Uh huh. You know, I think it would just be a slightly better version of probably what is exactly the same thing. I tell you, I think what the the biggest acting, you know, moment in this movie, if I can be real with you for a second, on a show that commands nothing less. (laughs) Do you think the direction to Jeff Daniels during like the drunk scene, he almost got us monologue. Do you think John DeBont said, now just pretend to be, you know, Keanu Reeves. (laughs) I, uh, he could have got us, man. 
<laughs> he could have gotten us, but ugh. yeah, if Tom Cruise was in it, you wouldn't have the sheer number of lines that Keanu can't pull off. Right. But there is something about Keanu's physicality that like leads to John Wick today where it's like, he can do this shit. Like maybe more so than any, I'm trying to think of an action star. Who's not like a Taekwondo star who can actually do the stuff he's doing in the movie. Like he he doesn't take his flail about, he doesn't take his shirt off at any point. But it feels like it's off for the entire movie, doesn't it? Oh, it might as well be off from moment one. It could just be like a bulletproof vest in the first scene and just like shorts. Yes. He's good to go. Cargo, camouflage shorts. And this made me this made me miss the kind of role that Keanu has not taken this side of like 1999, where he, he just doesn't play cocky bastards anymore. And a la Point Break and this movie, he's really good at it. I kind of like like the weird directions that Keanu Reeves's career has taken. You know, like he winds up in like Nancy Myers, uh, something's got to give as like the romantic underdog to uh, Jack Nicholson for right, some the reason. Doctor, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're Erica Berry. I've seen uh, every one of your plays. <laughs> I like the way Sandra Bullock like looks at him in this movie, where she's like, you know, she's playing a little bit of a hot mess. But when he says things like, ma'am, that was really well done. In fact, it was brilliant. Like, she looks at him and it's kind of like, oh, you're, you're a cute little thing, aren't you? Who, like, can't really. Like, I mean, in, in, in the movie, I mean, in the part, she's just like, well, you're, you're, like, you're funny. You don't have any other mode in uh, the part either. Right. He never really, like, crosses the line bet- with Sandra Bullock, like, in a sexual way. No. Like she's the one who sort of like breaks the breaks the glass. What about Hopper? Hopper's a mad. We are literally at the whims of a madman here. The whim of a madman. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so he is just like bringing all of his like insanity to like a script that some of the lines are really good and some of them are garbage, and he brings the oh, yeah. same thing to all of them. Well, it's almost like Dennis Hopper signed up for this movie thinking it was just like a cash-in of some kind because of the script being not good. But then like maybe when he saw the energy like of the filmmaking itself, he like approaches this role with a weird like childlike wonder of like finally he's in a position where he's like both making money and getting to act and no one's really stopping him. (laughs) Definitely nobody stopped him at any point. No, nobody told him cut because he went too big. No. <laughs> yeah. Can it's I tell great, you, though. Can I tell you that every time I'm, like, watching Hulu on my computer and it's like, click on which part of this ad experience you want to enjoy, I say to myself alone in the apartment, interactive TV, Jack, wave of the future. Oh, that's a good one. Somehow, like a mixture of oh, and then we were like we were talking about with Pelham One Two Three, like the bus people are pretty good. You've got to let Some my Cameron go from bad. Ferris. Be- I mean, they're horrible, <laughs> but like, but they're like really entertaining. So here's the thing that I think needs to be answered about speed. It's either bad good or it's good good. These are I think the only two categories it can fit in. Am I right? Yeah, 
it's not bad bad oh yeah and it's definitely not it's it's, it's one not, of the most watchable movies there is yeah and it's not good bad no it's either bad good or I think, it's good good i think it's good good i think it's a i think it's a pretty serious good good i'm gonna agree with you I think it's like a well, but like the movie compensates with like a, just giving it 110% of everything else. Yeah. And the set pieces are unbelievable. I mean, the movie starts with a set piece for God's sake. Right. And I the think has, that yeah. Yonda Bont being a cinematographer by trade has like a great sense of these set pieces. Like how right. much of the building do we get to see in the opening set piece? It's so much, right? Right. Like when they when they end up running down that hallway with the Greek statues, or where we cut back to Joe Morton when the elevator crashes and he's in the basement and has to cover his ear, Jan de Bon is very imaginative about the scope of these like disasters. Yeah, and what I think is interesting too about him that makes him great for like you know movies that should be on TNT is that. Yeah he doesn't really care about the dialogue because like anything that anyone says in the dialogue, he will then like show you like the best example of that is it's cans. It's, it's cans. And every time Keanu Reeves says the word cans, it cuts back. So the setup is like, it's cans. It's just cans. There was no baby. It was full of cans. So there's a scene where the bus hits this stroller and like, uh, Sandra Bullock freaks out because she thinks she's like killed a baby. But like we know immediately when like uh, something could ha- come to harm in this carriage, like it's cans, it's just cans, <laughs> and it's just it's filled with cans. And then this like homeless woman who had been collecting all these cans is like pissed. Yeah, like action movie details, like when she turns on the indicator to make that impossible turn. That's such a great moment. Yeah, it's it's got a, n- a few nice flourishes in there. It's it's. I think it's it's competent enough to have real style to it. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's a good good. If you if you for some reason forgotten how good Speed is, which I had, seek it out now. It's on HBO. Ride the bus today. I'm glad yeah, you said it, that. It's on HBO. Taking a Pelham one two three is like on Netflix. Oh yeah. And Sully, which we're going to talk about now, is also on HBO. Well, so no, the adversary in this movie is simply. Birds. And, and the liberal media. And, well, yeah, bureaucracy. And bureaucracy and the liberal media. Right. Oh, Clint. And a, and a, lack, and a lack of human, like, of humanity and understanding about people things. That's true. It came out last fall, of course, directed by Clinton Eastwood. Um, and it stars Tom Hanks as Sully Sellenberger, who in January of 2009... Landed U.S. Airways flight number fifteen forty nine, I think, uh, in the Hudson River, taking out, of, taking off out of LaGuardia. Birds got into the engine, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> he lost both engines. And you know, you, you've heard about it. You've heard of Sully. What were we doing when Sully happened? Were we at the DN? Were we in school? When was this? Two thousand nine. Yeah, we must have been in. Well, I was. Yeah, we were in college. Okay. Must have been at the ZN. I don't know. I don't really remember it as that much of a national story, frankly. Maybe because no, I was in Lincoln. Number, yeah. But apparently there was enough to do. Yeah. Ooh, well, is there? <laughs> um, well, there's also a. And they, they, so we should say that it's based on the book that he wrote. Oh, yeah, that's right. Sully. No one warned us. 
No one said you were going to lose both engines at a lower altitude than any jet in history. This was dual engine loss at 2,800 feet, followed by an immediate water landing with 155 souls on board. No one has ever trained for an incident like that. I really liked going back and looking at the reviews for this. Um, because peop like the highest compliment people give this movie is extremely economical. Which it is. It's pretty economical. It makes a full-length film uh, basically out of dicing up the same like in-flight miracle and a couple people arguing in conference rooms. I mean, I think Clint Eastwood is at the point in his career where he can get like $30 million of funding to make a movie as long as he promises that it's not about like race relations. <laughs> like if it's about, you know, your 60 minutes person of the week. Yeah. Fine. Great. And But let me ask you this. Yes. Does this movie not feel just like from the outset of it? like very political from like just the beginning. Yeah. Like from, I don't know what it is about the movie. Maybe it's the subtle jazz score in the background, but there's something about this movie that from like moment one, it's probably just like the opening cold open where you and immediately are asked to feel bad for this like middle-aged white guy. Cause he's going to be out of his depth through like this whole 90 minutes. Yeah, it feels political to me in the sense of, like, the way Tom Hanks portrays Sully, he's like, he's a guy who's voted both Democrat and Republican in his life, but he doesn't like mm -hmm. to talk about it at dinner. Right. You know, he likes football because it's an American sport, not for the violence. Right. <laughs> but, like, celebrating that sort of person in 2016 from Clint Eastwood, yes, feels like a political act when I think that... Clint thinks he's making a pretty apolitical movie other than <laughs> making the white collar liberal establishment of the like government, like the bad guy when other accounts say that they were not, they were simply doing their job. Yeah. It, it, cause it seems like in this movie, yeah, it's if there's a protagonist and an antagonist, the protagonist is Tom Hanks and the oh, antagonist yeah. is the bureaucracy around like the insurance for this airline. Yeah. You know, and uh, placing like official blame on what happens. Yep. And, but like, that's like, uh, that's why I find this movie so political because it's just like that it exists is political because it's, I don't feel like it's that to make it a full movie length drama, you have to make it like this person versus this group. When, and we just talked when about not remembering not. that much, but like, I certainly don't remember any adversarial component at all. No, he was, like, celebrated, and then I never even heard that there was, like, an investigation about, like, what, like, that he'd potentially, like, not done this, right? Right. And then, you know, then I just assumed he was, like, a cool man who, like, maybe retired after that because that's fucking scary. I think this movie does the worst job of actually, like, establishing the people on the plane but it like definitely tries to. I just think it tries and fails. It tries to too late, I think. Well, well there's like the people who like are late for like the only interesting person they could find on that plane was the people who like were running late to go to like a golf tournament. Yeah. Like that's the people you like there's gotta be something with a better story than that. 
it's not enough material. And so you have this sort of thing where you're like supposed to be with Sully, but Sully's a very, Sully doesn't say much. And so when he does right. say a lot about like how he's experiencing the fallout of this miracle event, he says things that seem really, that seem very forced. Like I don't like it when processes are outside of my control. And it's like, that's, no, that's actor notes. That's not dialogue. And then right. it kind of like event, maybe 40 minutes in, we get our first sort of look at the flight. And I mean, much like a nod to you for calling this white flight back in the day. And you can say it again now, but the, the direction of the crash is incredible. And so is the, so is the calm. The sense of calm is what struck me most. Yeah. What's the calm of like the, well, that's the, that's what's interesting about the sequence in both flight and, uh, in Sully is that the actual like event is 200 seconds. Yeah. Like it's not very long and you can't really draw it out that much. And that's like the whole point is that he didn't have time to fly to Newark or back to LaGuardia. For so much of this movie, I'm watching this and I'm like, yeah, that's Tom Hanks. But like, what is he doing? And then you have the moment where he's walking down the aisle once the plane has crashed and he's just like, please put on your life vest. Please put on your life vest. And he's so calm. And the sense of calm that is Clint too, to have no soundtrack through that Mm -hmm. sort of like 10 minute sequence and just to be in total, you know, we've... (laughs) You said that Oliver Stone fancied himself a bit of a Snowden. I think Clint fancies himself a bit of a Sully. I definitely. Well, that's what he, I think Clint and Clint sees himself and Sully as just like, you know, like leave it to the good white people and we'll take care of things. But he like believes that he believes that there are these like people out there and he's not wrong that there aren't you people who put themselves in these situations and like make the right call and save 155 people. But the movie is just like so focused on like how this guy doesn't feel like he can speak in the world and he can't like come to his own defense because he's like bumping up against like what how the media might portray him. Like that's his nightmare is Katie Couric saying something negative about him. Yeah. And I think that that's like a very sort of interesting fear from this guy not to say that he's not human but i think like what's being analyzed here is almost like sort of like white fear about the implications of the fallout from events like these Mm -hmm. that's sort of clint's message just is like hey like give the give like the quieter white guy like a chance here he's probably doing the right thing and you know what he is at the same time it's also sort of like a reverse money ball. Like this is like yeah. a money ball where art how wins. Cause like this prospect passed the eye test. Damn it. I don't care what is like wins over replacement. Well, that's the is. Thing. <laughs> this movie is all about like going with your gut. Yeah. You know, it's about like just feeling your inner truth. And like, Sully didn't need to do the coordinates. He felt like he couldn't make it, but made the right call. Maybe it's the fact that it's based on his book, but like I think somebody else needs to make some more dramatic, if a little fictionalized, inferences about Sully to make this a more entertaining, more depthful character well, study. And it gives itself opportunities to like when there's the 
like that scene where he's being interviewed the first time. He's like, are there problems at home? And he goes like, no more than anyone else. That's like a perfect opportunity to like give him some home drama. But the only home drama is the fact that they're going through this. Yeah. The Laura Linney phone calls are so boring and nothing comes of them. And they have like something going on with like money and like a house they're trying to rent. But like, it's impolite to like really get into that shit. (laughs) So we don't. Yeah, finances are not this discussed is, at the dinner table that is Sully. This is the like most polite movie, I think. Yeah. And that for that reason, like it is the exact opposite of Flight, where Flight requires oh Denzel God. Washington to humble himself, I would argue, and I think I have to you, to a point of like embarrassment. Like, why are you doing this, Denzel? So what do you what would you rate it? I think that this is a pretty quintessential good bad. Yeah. I think that it's a totally well-made competent movie based on some like pretty interesting source material that like there was I mean there was a ton of news coverage on it. There was a book written about it. Did we need a movie of it? I don't know. Chance you're even yawning over there as I synopsize <laughs> its meaning. <laughs> um but yeah, it's but it's it's boring. Yeah, I mean, I would see it once. It's it's not gonna it's not gonna kill you to see it. And my like, you know, left leaning read into it is not you know it's, it's perfectly harmless. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you, it's not hard to watch. It's ninety minutes. I was thinking. I was actually thinking about the only time, the only the reasons to watch this movie again and what they might be. Because um, I think if you were like looking at Clint's work in 20 years, you would just watch like American Sniper, which is a more like dramatic visceral version of like this. Kind, but I think a worse movie story. Yeah. But if I you were going to talk Sully's about definitely... who Clint is, you'd watch that. But, but maybe Sully is go ahead. But if you were writing about like Hanks in like a lot of years and you were like, remember when Hanks did like Captain Phillips and Sully and like hologram for the king and he just like started playing all these sort of like american roles that had kind of died out and he was like a a pretty nice american guy dying with them like then you right. would watch sully um, um but yeah no I, I think you're right but i think if you look back on it this will be clint eastwood's taking pelham one two three if american sniper is his speed i like it i like it oh uh, yeah good bad from me too it's it's an interesting movie to think about in the sense of like how it plays the one single card it has to play. Uh, What's showing the air, the showing the crash like five different times. Yep. So it actually plays it like five times. Um, but yeah, it's a good, it's a good bad. Mm-hmm. I agree. But the moral here is no matter how bad things get, Noah, even if you've lost both engines, nobody wants to go to LaGuardia. No, no. Well, good category, buddy. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. A lot of fun. We I think- never want to watch six alien movies ever again. <laughs> we were thinking about, yeah, cheers to my sister for putting us on this track after she heard of our about our bus movies category. And she was like, you should do Unstoppable and like transit that can't slow down. And then cheers to you for being like, well, Unstoppable is about freight train, but we could make it a hell of a commute and do Sully and Speed and taking of. That was a particularly brilliant uh, move on my part. Thank you for giving me credit. Nice. I'm glad that you chose to hear that part. Um, <laughs> well, sir. Buddy. 
You take the train every day. Do you feel I take the subway you feel every safe? Day. What do I want for my 35 cents? To live forever? Oh! <laughs> All right, man. Well, listeners, thank you so much again for being with us. As always, berealpodcast.com is where you will find past episodes as well as on all the normal places you find podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, uh, Apple Podcasts, Twitter and Facebook. Find us there. Uh, you know, I don't know how many subscribers we've got, but the most you could do is, <laughs> no, is saying not too many. Um, we'd love you to subscribe for some reason you like listen on a different format. If you subscribe on like Apple or Stitcher, that'll help. And maybe pop, pop us a rating on there too. Please give yeah, us a good Yeah, that helps us good. get the big time guests. Yes, it does. We probably could have gotten that co-pilot. By the way, Sully's co-pilot. Oh, Aaron Eckhart's mustache? I was going to say, Sully's a more entertaining movie if you actually pretend that uh, Aaron Eckhart is actually Sully's son, but they just have a very distant relationship the whole time. (laughs) That's That's what I was doing. Those, Those mustaches were incredible. Was Eckhart's real? I can only imagine... He's a real man. Indeed. I wish I could grow a mustache like that. God, that's all I would do. Alas, we're just the people riding the buses and trains and planes. But, my friend. See ya. People get ready as a train a coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get on.